Welcome to Season 2 of Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am the host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast, and I have with me my co-host, Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and authored the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In season one, our guests were chosen for their expertise within the current healthcare system. Their bold plans drew thousands of listeners and sparked a national debate. The best and the boldest of their ideas were part of the first ever Fixing Healthcare survey which you can visit on my website, www.robertpearlmd.com. Please go there to check out the results and add your own comments, which we'll be sharing on air throughout this second season. Stay tuned to the end of this episode when Jeremy will read some of the comments from this survey, and I will provide my thoughts around them. This season, we'll be welcoming guests who come to us from outside of the medical mainstream. We're looking for new, unconventional ideas and practical strategies for making change happen. Our guest today is the cardiac surgeon, entrepreneur, and disruptor, Dr. Devi Shetty. He's the chairman and founder of Narayana Health, a chain of 21 medical centers in India. He has performed over 15,000 heart operations throughout his career and is committed to making healthcare as affordable as possible. Today, He provides cardiac surgery for less than $1,800 on a case compared to over $150,000 in the United States, with results that match or exceed the best American facilities. Recently, Dr. Shetty opened a hospital on Grand Cayman, a beautiful tourist island and just a one-hour flight from Miami. Will this stunning facility become a high-quality, low-cost alternative to America's expensive and underperforming hospitals? To anyone who thinks the American healthcare system is the best in the world, you will be surprised by what you hear today. Dr. Shetty, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Devi, I have followed your success for the past several decades. I know that you and your team have been providing excellent medical care with better quality, technology, and affordability than we can find almost anywhere in the United States. As you know, American healthcare is struggling. Healthcare costs are 50% higher than any other nation. Our outcomes rank last amongst all industrialized countries. Patients and doctors are growing increasingly dissatisfied with today's care delivery model. We'd like to give you 10 minutes or so to describe your experience, insights, and approaches to healthcare. I'll then use my background as a physician and healthcare CEO to help listeners determine what we might apply here in the United States. Jeremy will then dive in from the patient's perspective, ensuring the concepts are clear, and any medical jargon that you and I use has been translated into normal conversational language. Dr. Shetty, I can't wait to hear your ideas. Please let us know your best thoughts. The, uh, the first thing is, I would like to tell you, Robbie, if a solution is not affordable, it is not a solution. 
there is no point in we talking about all the advances in heart care or a cancer care if 90% of the world's population cannot afford it. I used to work for National Health Service of United Kingdom, NHS, which is famously known as. And uh, I left England in 1989, that's nearly uh, 30 years ago. And I came back to India. I did my first heart surgery in Calcutta. And the patient paid $2,000 for the heart surgery. 30 years later, we are doing the same heart surgery for less than $1,200. Robby, tell me what was costing $2,000 in healthcare. 30 years later, is costing $1,200. We worked very, very hard because our government, unlike your government, spends just 1.1% of the GDP on healthcare. So our patients buy food, they buy uh, everything what, I, what they want, everything they have to pay for, and they have to buy healthcare as well. So we all worked very, very hard and brought the cost of healthcare down to this level. The same agency accredits your hospitals for quality, accredits our hospitals as well. So we believe that cost of healthcare must come down so that everyone on this planet can afford it. And it is possible. It is possible provided we change the way delivering healthcare. We have to depend on technology and magic will happen, Robbie. All right, Debbie, thank you so much. And I agree completely that if healthcare is not affordable, patients can't access it and outcomes will suffer. You've addressed this problem in India. You're in the process of addressing it through your hospital in the Grand Cayman Islands. And we, as the United States, will be forced to do this as today, healthcare expenditures are the number one reason families in the United States go bankrupt. Let's go through various pieces. Tell me how you make your care so efficient in India today and achieve outcomes that are better than 95% of American hospitals. First thing is we build large hospitals in the sense as we do more operations, your results get better because we are, after all, technicians. As we do more operations, we do it better and the outcome is better. For your information, 12% of the heart surgery done in India is done by us. For you to give an understanding about what the 12% is, all the heart hospitals of National Health Service of UK, NHS of UK, they do about 30,000 heart surgeries every year. And uh, last year, we did the 17,000 heart surgeries at a price which is perhaps a rounding off figure of what National Health Service of United Kingdom spends. So when we do large number of procedures, you are able to procure materials at a lesser price. 
and since people are doing only one type of procedure on the heart i mean the obviously they get better at it and your icu stay goes down and also we believe that technology can make a big big difference in the way healthcare will be delivered and right now we are not looking at a cost reduction what we are looking at is making healthcare safer for the patient i will tell you why we took this approach some time ago i read a book written by a gentleman called uh, if i'm not mistaken peter o'neil who was the uh, ceo of alcova american aluminium company and he talked about a behavior called the keystone habit we tried hard to bring down the cost of heart surgery and in the future if we have to reduce the cost of healthcare we should not talk about cost reduction we should talk about making healthcare safer for the patient then automatically your cost will go down i'll i'll give an example everyone thinks hospitals are safer for the patient it is not if 200 patients get admitted to american hospitals which are perhaps some of the safest hospitals on the planet if 200 patients spend one night in an american hospital one in 200 dies due to medical error not medical negligence getting admitted to an american hospital is 10 times riskier than skydiving the british medical journal one of their article recently says that medical error is the third commonest cause of death in the united states if that is the case you can just imagine what is the situation of medical error outside us it must be horrendous now if we all try to digitize healthcare if we insist on using very very user friendly very very uh, intuitive and responsive electronic medical records which are available on a mobile phone not on a desktop which is available to all the doctors believe me mortality morbidity in the hospital can come down by at least 50% the uh, joint commission of us in their one of the recent reports mentioned that 65% of the sentinel events happening in the hospital which generally leads to death is due to communication failure what is communication failure communication failure is a patient comes back from the operating room gets a chest x-ray done and the chest x-ray remains in the desktop and doctors don't see it on time because patient is stable but after 3 hours when the patient is unstable because of the internal bleed they see the x-ray and they notice there was half a liter of blood in the chest and they re-explore the patient stop the bleeding yes they have done what was required but they did it 3 hours late and a 80 year old man if he loses 1 liter of blood believe me 
he will guide you to some of the complications. In healthcare, in the hospital, problem is not because doctors ignore the patient. They do everything what is required, but they do either half an hour or four hours later. We have to get the electronic medical records designed for the mobile phone. Of course, it can be watched on the desktop. Today, all the billion-dollar electronic medical records you are using in United States, they are all designed for the desktop. Of course, you can view it in a mobile phone, but it is a, it is a very Herculean task to make sense out of it because it is, it is not mobile-friendly. What you have to realize is that doctors look at the desktop only five to ten times in a day, but doctors look at their mobile phone 200 times in a day. We have designed our electronic ICU software based on a platform created by Microsoft called Kaizala. So every, if there is a patient in the ICU following heart operation, about 20 of us are taking care of the patient. We all come in that group like a WhatsApp, which is a very popular tool. But the difference between WhatsApp and Kaizala of Microsoft is that Kaizala is secure. It is HIPAA compliant. The data stays in our cloud. It doesn't belong to Microsoft. So all the 20 of the doctors can interact with, the, uh, with each other around the clock. We have 70 million diabetics in India. We are the diabetic capital of the world. And we have only 600 trained diabetologists. So now with the Kaizala diabetic app, we tell the diabetic patients that this is your app in your phone. You have all your data and we also have your medical data. Anytime blood sugar goes up and down, you send us the photo of your glucometer. That's all. And our diabetic counselor looks at the reports. She will look at what medications the patient is taking and she consults the diabetologist and calls the patient or sends him a message about changing the medication. So now we tell our diabetic patients that you need to come to the hospital just once a year. The rest of the time, Anytime the blood sugar goes up and down, you just let us know. We are, as one group in one hospital, we are managing about 40,000 patient diabetes. And over 10,000 of them are now getting treated online, and this project is only a few months old. So essentially, by using technology, healthcare will become accessible, it will become affordable, and it will become safer. So it's going to be a huge technological transformation. And this technological transformation, we believe, will happen in countries like India or China or one of the developing countries, mainly because I give you a comparison. Amazon started five years before Alibaba. And Amazon shifts Every day, if I'm not mistaken, about 3 million uh, boxes they shift. 
and Alibaba today ships about 12 million products. It is not because Alibaba is much smarter than Amazon. Amazon is serving a population which is well served with the retail networks. Whereas Alibaba is serving China. If somebody wants to buy a Nike shoes in China in small town, only way he can access is Alibaba. So in a country like India, where there is an acute shortage of medical specialists, online healthcare will grow like crazy once we create a good connectivity with a very reliable, robust network to protect the patient data. This will be amazing transformation, and we are very excited to be part of the entire revolution. So, Devi, you described a classical disruptive approach. How do you provide care at a much lower price and ultimately with far higher quality? For the listeners for whom your ideas are so revolutionary, I thought I would tell them a little bit about my experience watching you in action. I think your approach includes the ideas that volume and specialization are two powerful forces along with modern technology. The day I visited your facility in India, your teams did 37 heart surgeries, including a heart transplant with results that are better than 95% of the hospitals in the United States. States. When I saw your facility in the Grand Cayman Islands, there was a video monitor at the entranceway in the administrative area that had, as you described, the time for a physician to make a change in a patient's order. Not when they're having a cardiac arrest, that's always a meeting, but when they have a potentially threatening problem. And it was eight minutes, and you told me you wanted to get that down to six. I've seen your computer systems, the one in the Grand Cayman Islands. Not a big computer, but a iPad equivalent that physicians can carry from bed to bed with the patient's data appearing immediately in forms that allow the best clinical care to be provided. And the computer is taken out of the hospital, all the data disappears. I don't know any electronic health record in the United States that is anywhere close to what you are providing. And as you described, the diabetes application that you've developed not only allows care to be provided to vast numbers of additional people inexpensively, but provides better convenience and higher quality for patients with diabetes than what is done in the United States today because it is continuous. It is not episodic. For the listeners on the air, this is not about less good care. This is about better care. And I'll be speaking to the major purchasers a little later this year and encouraging them to consider the possibility of offering to their employees 
the opportunity to go to the Grand Cayman Islands for their surgery, not because it's less expensive, which it is, but because the quality and the outcomes will be more consistent and better. But with that as a background, Devi, let me ask you a couple of questions more foundational. I've heard you say that one of your jobs is to set a price for human life. Can you explain to the listeners what you mean by that? I see about 60 to 80, 100 patients every day in my clinic. And I do at least one or two major heart surgeries. And most of my patients are little kids sitting on a mother's lap. I examine the kid and I tell the mother that, you know, her baby has a hole in the heart and needs to go for an open heart surgery. And she has only one question. How much it is going to cost? And if I tell her that the heart surgery on her kit costs $800, which she doesn't have, that is a price tag on that kid's life. She comes up with $800, I can save her kid. If she doesn't have $800, she's going to lose the child. This is what I do from morning till evening, putting price tag on human life. This is totally unacceptable. This can't go on. Something has to be done. How do we price a product? Ravi, we are developing perhaps one of the most advanced electronic medical record tools in the world. This is based on our own product called Cura. Then it is built on a platform called Kaizala from Microsoft. And we are working with Bosch to provide the IoT so that the nurses in our hospital should not carry a pen. And we are investing heavily on this cloud-based EMR. And we have a dream, Robbie. We want every hospital on the planet who doesn't have an EMR to have this electronic medical record. And at no upfront cost, and they have to pay every time they use it on one patient per day. They just need to pay the price of one disposable plastic syringe per day. That is what it is going to cost them. Now, why I kept it at one price of a disposable plastic syringe? Because as uh, uh, providers of healthcare, managers of hospitals, when we do the costing of the procedure, we don't add the price of plastic syringes because it's so cheap. It's a rounding of figure. So we want electronic medical records to be available to hospitals at that price. Now, how are we going to do it? When you convert atoms into bytes, amazing things happen in the concept of trade. If I have developed a software to take care of my patients, and I paid for it because it is used for treating my patients. If I give you a copy of the software and I give the copy to every hospital on the planet, I can afford to give what I have without actually me losing it. This is what technology allows us to build 
a world where there is surplus, there is plenty. It's just that we have to learn how to share it. Your vision is absolutely beautiful. Most American companies see expanded volume as generating more profit, and you see it as being able to provide healthcare in ways that are higher quality and more affordable. Let me shift for a second, Debbie, if it's okay with you. America has a problem called physician burnout. What happens is that in the United States today, physicians are not having the satisfaction and fulfillment of past generations. The electronic health record is a major part of that. And there is no electronic health record in common use in the United States today that is actually oriented around clinical care rather than simply billing. And that is what you are building for the world. But I'd like to at least ask you a few questions about mission. When I was in your hospital, what I saw is that you are able to provide, using your technology, profit and loss statements about how the hospital did yesterday and the day before. And rather than keeping this information simply in the hands of the senior executives, you share it broadly with your staff. Can you explain to the listeners, why do you tell people in your hospital how well it's doing financially? When there is no money, there is no mission. Money is like oxygen. Purpose of life is not oxygen, but without oxygen, we don't live for more than three minutes. It is very important that every person involved in the caregiving process understands how much it costs for the particular service. So we value the service, or if it is not required, if it is not going to make a big difference, we may not order for a particular test. I, I'll give an example. We, we always like to share our uh, profit and loss account on a daily basis with the senior doctors involved in the patient's care so that they understand where exactly we stand. For us, looking at the profit and loss account at the end of the month is like reading a postmortem report. Patient is dead, there is nothing you can do about it. Whereas looking at the profit and loss account on a daily basis is a diagnostic tool. You can take remedial measures. Every hospital on the planet today talks about reducing the cost. But very few of them really know how much it costs. We believe that unless the doctors are part of the mission, no matter what incentive structure you create, they're not going to enjoy the process of their work. Typically, when a new hospital starts by a traditional corporate entity, the CEO of the group will address the, all the employees and the doctors. In the end, he would end up in his speech saying that, this is a hospital we have built for the rich people, but we have an obligation. We also take care of the poor people. 
Whereas when me or when one of my colleagues addressed us at the beginning of the uh, commissioning of the hospital, we tell our employees that we have built this hospital primarily for the poor people, but we also take care of the rich people. It's all about messaging. If the purpose is to take care of the poor people, when our employees, our doctors look at a poor man walking inside the corridor into our office, we don't look at him as an intruder or a person who should be here. We look at him as our customer and he's the purpose of our business. That dramatically changes your attitude of the employees and the people. Then we realize that if we have to reduce the cost and make it affordable, we have to work 10 times harder than the others. We don't look at it as a stressful uh, job. We look at it as a God-given opportunity to be with the family at the most difficult part of their life. When they are going through the most difficult phase of their life, we want to be there, holding their hand, making them feel comfortable. That fulfillment, that satisfaction is so refreshing and so different than in the United States where we have a third of our physicians uh, depressed and we have over 400 suicides a year. Again, for the listeners, I want them to understand that the physicians on your staff are incredibly well-trained. Many of them trained in England, trained in the United States, like yourself. They're physicians who could get jobs almost anywhere, and they choose to work inside your hospitals, I believe, because of that mission-driven spirit. I talked to a lot of people when I was there, and I didn't hear the kind of pessimism and negativity. And as you point out, your physicians work six days a week because they want to provide that care and raise the value of a human life. I have to ask you a question, Debbie, because your mission-driven spirit is so impressive. I know that you were the physician, the personal physician of Mother Teresa. I'm sure our listeners would like a few of your insights into that remarkable woman and the impact she had on your life. I was operating in uh, my hospital in Calcutta. And those days there were no mobile phones. And a call came to the operating room and the caller said that uh, if I am free, I should make a home visit to see a sick patient at home. And I told my anesthetist that, uh, look, I was scrubbed up. So I told my anesthetist to convey the message that uh, I'm a heart surgeon and I don't make home visits. Then the caller said, please request Dr. Shetty to make the home visit because it may change, perhaps change his life. And this is what anesthetist told me. And I said, all right, if it is going to change my life, I would love to visit. And then when I went to the house, then I realized the patient was Mother Teresa. And uh, believe me, my life has never been the same after I met her for the first time. I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, 
it is very hard for a person like me to believe that someone else with the flesh and blood like me can be like god and believe me mother even though she was born as a human being she was not like us she is something beyond all of us she was something totally divine and you could feel her divine presence when you are uh, standing close to her and uh, the lessons i learned from her uh, the the values she taught me has really uh, changed the way i looked at life her simplicity her very different approach to her life in terms of just the sheer power of love she just had only love nothing else to give to anybody and believe me it was perhaps the best four years of my life i uh, couldn't believe that one of our famous statements which i have it in my office one of our quotes hands that help are more sacred than the lips that pray and uh, once i was doing the rounds in the hospital and she was admitted she was just recovering from uh, mild heart failure and she used to accompany me when i was doing the rounds in the pediatric icu and after she saw me examining two or three kids she looked at me and she said uh, dr shetty i know why you are here and i asked her uh, mother why am i here then she said when god created these kids with the hole in the heart he realized that he has he did a mistake and he wanted someone to fix it so he sent you here and this is the best this definition of what a pediatric cardiac surgeon is about that was perhaps the best four or five years of my life yeah she's still alive in my memories absolutely beautiful devi absolutely beautiful let me shift a little bit uh, in the united states education is simply another business people make a significant amount of dollars training individuals and in the same way that you've approached healthcare you've asked yourself the question how do we train an adequate global workforce in ways that are better than the past using technology and using redefined curriculum can you uh, tell the listeners your thoughts about education and some of the pilot programs you've already put in place the medical nursing paramedical education should come out of the uh, edifices of the so called buildings offering medical education to the bedside medical education should become what it was when it started as an apprenticeship then only you will get outstanding doctors nurses technicians with great skill and a compassionate heart today universities offer us the knowledge but they don't offer the skills 
if i want to train a bus driver if i send him to a university they will give him a 500 page book with the curriculum all the contents describing how the bus's ignition system works how the aerodynamic works but they never put him on a driver seat and teach him how to drive the bus safely whereas instead of sending him to the university if i send him to a driving school to learn driving he will come back after 6 months as a very well trained safe driver to drive the bus this is what is required in medical education our ambition is to create a global medical university which is virtual which doesn't belong to any country or a organization or the people it is owned by the world like who and this university which is virtual has no building it attracts the most talented academicians to write the curriculum write the content which is available online free of cost for anyone to learn and any busy hospital with the 300 400 beds can become a center for offering medical nursing paramedical education and the global medical university should conduct online tests to evaluate the performance of each student and these graduates should be allowed to practice their skill in a borderless world today there are countries in asia which has thousands of children with the complex heart problem and they hardly have one or two heart surgeons who can operate on them if i want to go to their country and operate their medical council doesn't allow me to do that saying that i am not registered to work in their country that is insane if i am not trained person of course they shouldn't let me so essentially what we have done we have built multiple trade unions which doesn't allow free flow of skills and we always try to keep the shortage based on so called quality of medical nursing education and in the process everyone suffers something has to be done devi i know a few years ago you established a insurance program so that the poorest of farmers could still get the surgical care they needed and you did it in a capitated a prepaid way could you explain in more detail how that program worked yeah around 14 years ago there was drought in the state of karnataka as i said our patients buy healthcare because our government spends very very small amount of money on healthcare so the i have many friends running hospitals in tier 2 tier 3 cities and in city of bangalore they all told me that the uh, business is down because people have no money to buy the healthcare because there is no rain there is drought so 
I thought about a scheme wherein if all the poor farmers pay a small amount of money, something like 11 cents per month, 11 cents is the quantum of money farmers spend every day to smoke a local form of cigarette called BB. So I thought if a farmer doesn't smoke one day, and that money he contributes to the scheme of 11 cents. And if the government becomes a reinsurer, we can run a health insurance scheme which can pay for all the surgeries. And this is exactly what it happened. We presented this scheme to the Karnataka state government, which always has progressive governments who like all these new ideas, and they took it up. And in the first year, to Karnataka State Cooperative Societies, we have very strong cooperative society network, which deals with the farmers who sell milk, farmers who sell sugar cane, millions of members who are members of this cooperative society. And through the cooperative society, we enrolled 1.7 million farmers who agreed to pay 11 cents per month for the health insurance. And the health insurance will pay only for the surgeries. There are 650 varieties of surgeries done on the human body. And all the surgeries are recognized to be done under the scheme. And we network with 400 hospitals across the state. Just because I conceived the idea of health insurance, that didn't mean that all the patients needed to come to me. They can choose to go to any hospital of their choice. And interestingly, Robbie, at the end of uh, 12, 13 years, 1.5 million farmers had varieties of surgeries. And over 150,000 farmers had a heart operation. All this happened just by paying 11 cents per month. Poor people in isolation are very weak, but together they are very strong. So amazing things can happen if we bring all these millions of poor people and offer them services which are essential for life. This is the lesson we learned. For the surgeons who are listening, they tend to work in these very claustrophobic ORs with walls all around them. Could you describe for the listeners what your operating rooms look like in your hospital in, in operation theaters in the Western countries and even in India? Uh, they have no windows. They have no windows because in good old days, uh, Robbie, surgeons operated, as you know, only half a day, three days a week. We as surgeons operate from morning till evening because that's all what we do. And we work six days a week. Surgeons are creative people, Robbie. We are all artists. If you put an artist in a room without window, if he is part of the if he is not part of the nature, within two hours they get jittery and the creativity will be lost. So when we design our operating room, 
we create big windows so that we can constantly look outside and when it is raining we can see when it is sunshine we can see we are part of the nature let me return back to the cayman islands you know americans have a very narrow viewpoint we believe that somehow the sun re revolves around the united states we tell ourselves that the care that's provided is the best in the world and we rarely look beyond our borders which is why i was so excited when you accepted an invitation to come on the fixing healthcare podcast for the listeners out there i will tell them that i've seen a lot of academic institutions in the united states a lot of hospitals in the united states and i'm absolutely convinced that your surgeons are as good as the best that i've seen if not better your outcomes are as good as the best in the united states if not better your it systems are better both your electronic health record and your ability to monitor operations report out to people the hospitals themselves are beautiful particularly the one in the grand cayman islands and for people who have never been there it is one of the best tourist destinations with a 7 mile white sand beach they speak english totally safe and absolutely gorgeous and you do surgery there at half of the price of the united states when will americans from miami get on the plane for the 1 hour flight to have their elective heart surgery done to have their total joints replaced or their spine surgery done or their even their cancers being cared for when do you see this tipping point being reached ultimately the economic realities and the data prevail i'll first talk about the competence of our surgeons in the us if a hospital is doing about 200 heart surgeries a year it is recognized as a premier center which can train heart surgeons and one hospital of ours where i am working we do over 700 heart surgeries a month and uh, in us a average heart surgeon in his entire professional career would have done about 2000 to 3000 heart surgeries in his whole professional career we have surgeons who have done more than 2000 to 3000 heart surgeries and they're they are only in their late 30s or early 40s so essentially we are in a privileged position back in india because of the great opportunities to learn lot of things with lot of limitations we believe that whenever we want to start a new project we always tell ourselves 
that we have no money, but we want to do it. When you have millions of dollars in the bank, believe me, your brain stops working. When you have no money and you still want to do it, amazing things happen. There is a very interesting quote from our ancient scriptures called Upanishad that says that when you are striving to do something for the welfare of the society, cosmic forces connive their way for you to succeed. Amazing things happen. You get help from places where you least expected. In the end, you succeed. Because your mission is to make this world a better place to live for all of us. This is how we believe that whatever we do, we will succeed. For people in the United States who are considering coming to Grand Cayman for a procedure, how are you going to convince them that they are getting the same quality that they could in the United States at such a reduced cost? For example, if I go to the store and I see a $5 shirt at one store and I see a $100 shirt at another store, I'm just automatically going to assume that the $100 shirt is much higher quality. What are you going to do to combat this perception and reassure people about the quality of outcomes you're providing? Jeremy, there is a way we can do it. Uh, what we have done is that we accredit our hospital with the Joint Commission of U.S which is a body which accredits American hospital. Like a, a, a regular patient cannot inspect how good our services are, how good our infrastructure is. Whereas a body called Joint Commission, which is an accrediting body, can certify. And we always get our hospitals accredited by them just to reassure Americans or whoever it is that we maintain higher standards. Then they can go through our results, which is available for people to see. And uh, of course, there are patients who had similar procedures done in the past who can explain to them about their experience. Today, uh, it is possible for institutions or the individuals to uh, have a fairly good idea about the performance and the outcome of most of the hospitals. It's not a mystery, but then, there is something called mind block. Uh, so this is something uh, will take quite some time to address. There's a community in California, particular city, where the cost of care is even higher than in the surrounding areas. And the city actually gives employees who choose to go to another hospital in California at a distance, $5,000 to do so. I could well imagine that large employers in the United States will offer their patients in the near future the same kind of financial incentives to come down to your facility in the Grand Cayman Islands and have surgery that they will be able to see objective data around 
of higher quality, better technology, and more patient-focused. What is your message to American physicians, Debbie? <laughs> uh, the, uh, my message to American physicians is to visit our health city in Cayman Islands and experience it themselves. Uh, be our guest and uh, see how the hospital runs and then they can make their own decision. Well, Dr. Shetty, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Can you please provide a closing statement with takeaways for both industry leaders and for the average healthcare consumer? I have a very simple message to the, uh, the industry leaders of the U.S. If healthcare has to get transformed across the world, including developing countries, America has to change. If American healthcare doesn't change, believe me, the healthcare delivery model of the rest of the world will not change because America is still the leader for all of us and we all look upon America as a leader, a pioneer, and a change agent. But unfortunately, whatever reason, America hasn't been able to make dramatic changes in the way healthcare is delivered. We would like the American healthcare leaders to change the, and bring about a paradigm shift in the way they look at the industry. And once we all become part of the massive healthcare revolution, everyone will have a safer healthcare affordable healthcare and accessible healthcare. And this can be done only if America wakes up to the reality and looks at healthcare in a different angle. Thank you. Debbie, thank you so much for being on our show. Your ideas are breathtaking in scope. I will inspire listeners to embrace many of the opportunities you discussed. You're the first guest on this season two and it's exceeded my wildest hopes. You've opened our eyes to the fact that this is a global economy and that healthcare does not end at the borders of the United States. Every other industry has experienced this globalization. American healthcare can't be far behind. I can't promise that we'll adopt all of your ideas, but if the United States can't learn from innovative experts like you, and match your superior outcomes, your superior technology, both in India and the Cayman Islands, I can guarantee more and more Americans will be flying to your hospitals to receive their medical care. Thank you so much. Next month in the second episode of season two of our show, our guest will be Chip Heath. Chip is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, teaching courses on business strategy and organizations. He is the co-author, along with his brother Dan, of four books, including Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard, their latest book, an instant New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Power of Moments, Why Uncertain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact, was published in the fall of 2017. Chip will bring his expertise and insights from outside of the world of healthcare to the podcast, and he will help us figure out what healthcare can learn from other industries about translating great ideas into practice.
Before we go, we're going to take a few minutes to hear your suggestions for fixing healthcare. After interviewing six of the top names in medicine during season one, we wanted to know what you had to say. So we invited our audience to take the first ever survey to fix American healthcare, which can be found on my website, www.robertperlmd.com. We received nearly 200 responses over the past month. Today, we'd like to thank those of you who wrote in about tort reform, an essential ingredient for fixing healthcare. We heard from Karina, who told us that tort reform, quote, has to be on the list or none of the solutions for fixing healthcare will ever work. She says doctors have to feel safe in order to stop practicing defensive medicine. Dan Thomas wrote us, calling for a cap on medical malpractice claims, while Gary Nolan noted that it's often cheaper for doctors and insurance companies to pay fraudulent claims than to fight them. Gary suggested that, quote, tort reform would also mean better defining malpractice. Robbie, can you provide the listeners with some of your thoughts on tort reform? I agree with the listeners on this one. The current malpractice legal system is even more broken than the American healthcare system. Study after study has shown that malpractice concerns, the malpractice system doesn't improve clinical quality or patient safety. All it does is raise the cost of medical care. And when patients deserve compensation for the harm they've experienced, we know that as much as 40% of the awards go to the attorneys, not the families. Today, countries like Sweden, Denmark, and New Zealand employ a no-fault approach to medical malpractice. We believe that would be far better, a far better solution than the flawed system we have in America today. Once again, thanks to Gary Nolan, Dan Thomas, Karina, and everyone who participated in the survey to fix American healthcare. You can see their full comments on our website. We also invite you to visit robertpearlmd.com to leave your comments. And we will read more comments on next month's Fixing Healthcare show. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. You like the show? Please rate the show five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Fixing Healthcare. That's Fixing HC Podcast. You can also find our personal social media accounts on the website. And for additional information on other healthcare topics, please check out my website. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world once again. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.